Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. As always, great to have you with us. The leaders of the world's two largest economies have wrapped up their highly consequential talks in Bali, Indonesia. And we are, of course, waiting for a press conference from President Joe Biden imminently. We will bring that to you when it starts. For now, though, U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping, as you can see, shaking hands there, met for more than three hours on the sidelines of the G20 summit. It's the first face-to-face talk since Biden entered the White House. And he, of course, reiterated going into this meeting that the U.S. is committed to keeping the lines of communication between the two countries open. President Xi, for his part, also saying he was ready for, quote, candid discussions. The world, of course, hopes that is truly the case. Any easing of tensions between the two superpowers, be it on Taiwan, on technology, even over Russia, would be warmly welcomed, of course, by all, including investors. For now, as you can see, U.S. futures tilted to the downside consolidation, let's call it that, after last week's 8% gains for the Nasdaq in particular. Europe, in the meantime, is in the green. The presidential sit-down also happening just as China announces material support for its weakened property sector. Just to give you a sense, it's estimated to be anywhere between around 17 and 29 percent of Chinese GDP, the property sector, by the way. All this just days after Beijing announced that it was easing some COVID restrictions too. The news giving further support to Hong Kong shares, which soared almost 8 percent on Friday. In the meantime, SoftBank await on Japanese markets down by over 12 percent. That's its biggest one-day loss in years. SoftBank reporting an almost $10 billion loss inside its well-known Vision Fund. That's its investment arm. The third successive quarter of poor performance there in particular. So lots to come in the show. Let's get more on our top story for now. The just-concluded U.S.-China talks in Bali. President Biden, as I mentioned, expected to speak after meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit. It was the first time They've talked in person since Biden took office. And earlier, they briefly spoke about what they hoped to get out of the meeting. And uh, as you know, I'm committed to keeping the lines of communications open between you and me personally, but our governments across the board, because our two countries are, have uh, so much that we have an opportunity to deal with. A statesman should think about and know where to lead his country. He should also think about and know how to get along with other countries and the wider world. Mm. That's certainly what everyone's hoping for. Ivan Watson joins us now from Bali. Obviously, great expectations on what President Biden says was actually discussed in this meeting and the outcomes, but very low expectations in terms of concrete deliverables. Ivan, what are we expecting? Well, we're starting to hear uh, both uh, the White House and the Chinese Foreign Ministry have put out statements kind of summarizing uh, the results of this three-hour meeting here 
in Bali. And, and I do have to say I'm, I'm a bit surprised that there do seem to be some concrete results. The, um, the White House statement says that the two leaders agreed for the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, to conduct a follow-up visit to uh, China sometime in the future. That hasn't been mentioned in the Chinese statement. Ivan, I'm just going to break in because I do uh, believe President Biden is about to speak, to so we're going to head to that right now. Thanks, Ivan. Good evening, everyone. Uh, let me start with a few words about the recent elections held in the United States. What we saw was the strength and resilience of the American democracy, and we saw it in action. And the American people prove once again that democracy is who we are. There was a strong rejection of election deniers at every level from those seeking to lead our states and those seeking to serve in Congress and also those seeking to oversee the elections. And uh, there was a strong rejection of political violence and voter intimidation. And there was an emphatic statement that in America, the will of the people prevails. I have uh, I've traveled this week and it's been clear just how closely the world and our allies and our competitors as well have been following our elections at home. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have a little cold. And what these elections showed is that there's a deep and unwavering commitment in America to preserving and protecting and defending democracy. Now, let me speak briefly about our agenda over the past few days in Egypt and in uh, Cambodia and here in Indonesia. In this moment of great global challenges, from global inflation to the climate crisis to Russia's brutal war against Ukraine, we're bringing together the broadest possible coalition of partners to deliver results. <clears throat> At COP27 in Egypt, I made it clear that thanks to the bold agenda of our administration, we pursue from day one to tackle the climate crisis and advance energy and security at home and around the world, the United States will meet, the United States will meet our emissions target under the, our targets under the Paris Agreement. And we're going to keep working with our partners to support the most vulnerable countries in building resilience to climate impacts and to uh, align global ambition with the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal while supercharging our clean energy transition. At the U.S. ASEAN Summit, in the East Asia Summit, I laid out a commitment for, to working with our partners in the Indo-Pacific to ensure a future that uh, is vital to this region that's free and open and prosperous as well as secure. And uh, I met with our allies from Australia, Japan, and the Republic of Korea, underscoring our commitment and deepening our engagement with our closest partners and strengthening cooperation among our allies to meet shared threats to our own security and to this, their security, including the DPRK. And let me meet, uh, I, I, I just met in person with Xi Jinping of the People's Republic of China. We had, <coughs> excuse me, we had an open and candid conversation about our intentions and our priorities. It was clear, he was clear and I was clear, that we'll defend American interests and values, promote universal human rights, and stand up for the international order and work in lockstep with our allies and partners. We're going to compete vigorously, but I'm not looking for conflict. I'm looking to manage this competition responsibly. And I want to make sure make sure that every country abides by the international rules of the road. And we discussed that. The one China policy, our one China policy has not changed, has not changed. We oppose unilateral change in the status quo by either side, and we're committed to maintaining the peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits. It was also clear that China and the United States should be able to work together where we can to 
to solve global challenges that require every nation to do its part. We discussed Russia's aggression against Ukraine, reaffirmed our shared belief in the threat or the use of nuclear weapons is totally unacceptable. And I ask that Secretary Blinken travel to China to follow up on our discussions and continue keeping the lines of communication open between our two countries. Looking ahead at the G20 meetings tomorrow, we're going to be talking, taking on the very issues that matter to the people's lives, not only here, but uh, also, uh, also our allies and our partners. That means tackling the suffering that Russia aggression has unleashed, not just in Ukraine people, but the people around the world, particularly food insecurity, and strengthening the fundamentals of our global economy for everyone. Support for debt relief, reforms for multilateral development banks, investments to bolster global health security, and to make sure the world is better prepared for the next pandemic. The G20 has been an important forum for the world's largest economies to work together for the good of people everywhere. And I'm looking forward to our meetings tomorrow. Now, let me close with this. On my first trip overseas last year, I said that America was back. Back at home, back at the table, and back to leading the world. In the year and a half that's followed, we've shown exactly what that means. America is keeping its commitments. America is investing in our strength at home. America is working alongside our allies and partners to deliver real, meaningful progress around the world. And at this critical moment, no nation is better positioned to help build the future we want than the United States of America. Now, I'm happy to take questions, and I'm told there are going to be four questioners, but I'm not going to do 10 questions from each questioner. All right? Let's just make that clear at the outset here. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, Ken Thomas, Wall Street Journal. Not want, uh, you did not want a competition to turn into conflict. Based on this meeting today, do you believe a, a new Cold War with China can be avoided? And specifically on the issue of Taiwan, you spoke about intentions. Do you believe China is preparing, intending to invade Ta Taiwan at some point? And what warnings did you issue to President Xi if he were to take such action? Well, to answer the first part of your question, I absolutely believe there need not be a new Cold War. We, uh, I've met, met many times with Xi Jinping, and we were candid and clear with one another across the board. And I do not think there's any imminent attempt on the part of China to invade Taiwan. And I uh, made it clear that our policy in Taiwan has not changed at all. It's the same exact position we've had. I made it clear that we want to see cross-strait issues peacefully resolved, and, uh, and so it never has to come to that. And uh, I'm convinced that, uh, that he understood exactly what I was saying. I understood what he was saying. And uh, look, I think the United States is better prepared than any country in the world, economically and politically, to deal with the changing circumstances around the world. And uh, I think that uh, um, I think Xi Jinping is uh, we agreed that we would set up a set of circumstances where on issues that were that we had to f further resolve details, we agreed that we would have our chief of staff our the appropriate cabinet members and others sit and meet with one another to discuss the details of any every issue that we that was raised. And we raised a lot of issues. 
Um, uh, uh, Sung uh, Kim, uh, Associated Press. Mr. President, um, uh, you met with President Xi and you met with him face to face after he had unquestionably consolidated his power at home. So now that you've met with him face to face, how do you assess um, his sort of posture towards the United States now? And did you find him personally to be more confrontational or more conciliatory and willing to compromise? Neither and yes. I, yes, I didn't find him more confrontational or more conciliatory. I found him what he's always been, direct and straightforward. And uh, do I think he's willing to compromise on various issues? Yes. I think he understands that, uh, look, I, I think, how can I say this tactfully? Um, I think the, uh, I think the election held in the United States, which still leaves a little bit uncertain, uh, has sent a very strong message around the world that the United States is ready to play. The United States is, uh, you know, the Republicans who survived, along with the Democrats, uh, are of the view that uh, we're going to stay fully engaged in the world and that we, in fact, uh, know what we're about. Uh, and so I, I don't get any sense that there's a more or less confrontation. We were very blunt with one another about places where we disagreed or where we were uncertain of each other's position, and we agreed we'd set up, and we, we did, mechanisms whereby we would meet in detail with our the, the key people in each of our administrations to discuss how we could resolve them or how if they weren't resolved on, on what basis were they not resolved um sebastian smith the so uh uh the uh, afp thank you very much mr president it's extremely close <laughs> excuse me i don't usually talk that loud <laughs> Does the retaking of Kherson in Ukraine signal a turning point in the war, in your opinion, um, that the Ukrainians, where the Ukrainians could realistically pursue their ultimate goal of expelling the Russians completely, uh, including retaking Crimea? If so, does the U.S. intend to support and facilitate that goal, as you've been doing so far with their other goals? Or would you perhaps see Kherson as a different kind of uh, inflection point, basically a good time to start negotiating now that they've got a, some more strength than they had you know, a few weeks ago? Thank First you. of all, it was a significant, significant victory for Ukraine. Significant victory. And uh, I can do nothing but uh, applaud the courage, determination, and capacity of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military. I mean, they have really been amazing. And uh, I, uh, I think it's hard to tell at this point exactly what it means in terms of, uh, but I've been very clear that we're going to continue to provide the capability for the Ukrainian people to defend themselves, and we are not going to engage in any negotiation. There's no, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. It's a decision Ukraine has to make. I think you're going to see things uh, slow down a bit because of the winter months and the inability to move as uh, as easily around the, the country. But uh, I think it remains to be seen exactly what the outcome will be, except that I'm confident that Russia will not occupy or defend uh, uh, Ukraine as they intended from the beginning. Um, uh, I have trouble reading this. 
Reuters, uh, Natanya Bose. President, um, quick there. question um, on North Korea, uh, which appears uh, poised to uh, conduct a new nuclear test. Uh, I'm wondering if you can um, talk about your specific discussions with uh, President Xi on that. Um, to what extent do you think China has the ability to talk uh, North Korea out of conducting such tests? And what are the repercussions for U.S.-Chinese relations if a test goes forward? Well, first of all, uh, it's difficult to say that I am certain that, that China can control North Korea, uh, number one. Number two, I made it clear to uh, President Xi Jinping that I thought they had an obligation to attempt to make it clear to North Korea that they should not engage in long-range nuclear tests. And I made it clear as well that if they did, they, meaning North Korea, that we would have to take certain actions that would be more defensive on, on our behalf, and it would not be directed against North Korea. I mean, excuse me, it would not be directed against China, but it would be to send them a clear message to North Korea. We are going to defend our allies as well as American soil and American capacity. And so, uh, but uh, I do not think that uh, it's difficult to determine whether or not uh, um, China has the capacity. I'm confident China is not looking for North Korea to engage in further escalatory uh, means because I made it clear, and I made it clear from the very beginning and, and last year as well, that uh, we will do what it needs to defend our capacity to defend ourselves and our allies, South Korea as well as uh, um, Japan and that uh, it, it would be, we'd be more up in the face of, of, of uh, China, but it wouldn't be because of China, it'd be because of what was going on in North Korea. So, uh, and uh, again, on a number of these issues, we have put together teams where our National Security Advisor, Secretary of Defense, and others are gonna be engaging with their counterparts from China to see, and we're not going to be able to work everything out. I'm not suggesting it's going to, this is kumbaya, you know, everybody is going to go away with everything in agreement. But I do not believe there's a need for concern of a, as one of you raised the legitimate question, a new Cold War. And uh, I think that, uh, I'll conclude by saying it this way. I want to be clear and be clear with all leaders, but particularly with Xi Jinping, that I mean what I say and I say what I mean. So there's no misunderstanding. That's the biggest concern is I have is a misunderstanding about intentions or actions on each of our parts. So we went into, I look at my team, how long did that meeting last? Three and a half hours. So we covered an awful lot of territory. And, uh, and I must say that uh, he was as straightforward as he has been with me in the past, and I, I think that uh, we understand one another, which is the most important thing that can be done. I guess all of you are going swimming from here. It's not far. Uh, but Mr. President, what should Americans expect from Congress as it relates to abortion rights after the midterms? I don't think they can expect much of anything other than we're going to maintain our positions. I'm not going to get into more questions. I shouldn't even answer your question. No, 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 I don't think that... I, I, I don't think there's enough votes to codify unless something happens unusual in the House. I think we're going to get very close in the House, but I don't 
I think it's going to be very close, but I don't think we're going to make it. Thank All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. That's the, that could- President Biden there on stage in Bali following his meeting with President Xi Jinping. He reiterated, I say what I mean and I mean what I say, emphasizing straight talking with the Chinese president. He talked about them having open and candid discussions. They talked about their priorities and their intentions. They do intend to compete vigorously, he said, but also manage that competition and avoid all forms of conflict. He said that the position from the United States on the one China policy had not changed, but they're looking more broadly at ways that they can work together in terms of global challenges, climate change obviously being an important one. And as far as Russia's concerned, he said they also talked about that and they re-emphasised the fact, I think collectively, that nuclear weapons use is totally unacceptable. And of course, that's been the message in, in recent days from China too. Then, he, of course, he was asked about discussions over North Korea, over the retaking of Kherson in Russia, the position on Taiwan and his concerns there, and of course, just the relationship between he and Xi Jinping too. I want to bring in Ivan Watson now, who joins us from Bali, and Selena Wang, who joins us from Beijing. Ivan, I'll come back to you, because before uh, President Biden began speaking, we were talking about what actually came out of that meeting. It looks like, and he had said, look, we, we had a lot of land and time in, in that three hours for, for broader discussion. What was your strongest takeaway from what he said? Well, I think it was one statement that uh, President Biden repeated. He does not think there is a new Cold War between the world's two largest uh, economies. Uh, The White House went into this meeting saying that it wanted to establish new channels of communication, uh, lines of communication that were ruptured, uh, especially since August, since the U.S. uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, visited Taiwan and China was infuriated by that. And it sounds from the result of this meeting, both from the readout coming from the Chinese foreign ministry uh, and from the White House readout and from what we've heard from President Biden himself, that these two leaders have agreed to reestablish these uh, lines of communication, that they're going to have these types of working groups that will be able to talk to each other to, as President Biden uh, put it, to make sure that there is not a risk of some kind of misunderstanding. That was one of the goals that the White House set for this meeting. President Biden said that uh, he wants his uh, uh, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, to be traveling to follow up on these talks uh, in China. Uh, And from the initial statement that we have, uh, a lengthy one from the Chinese foreign ministry, it does appear that uh, both leaders have agreed that they do need to find areas where they can work together. uh, And they're going to try to, in some way, uh, move forward on some of these fronts. That said, there are still a whole host of areas where Beijing and Washington still strongly disagree. And the biggest flashpoint, Julia, is, of course, Taiwan. And there we also heard more clarity from the U.S. president, where he said that uh, the U.S.'s one China policy has not changed, that the U.S. opposes unilateral change of the status quo. And this is important by either side, by China or by Taiwan. Uh, so this is a way to try to, to, to bring back to the original arrangement that Washington and Beijing agreed to in the 70s and 80s when they reestablished uh, formal diplomatic relations. Uh, Taiwan, as the Chinese foreign ministry put it today, is the bedrock of the relationship between 
between uh, the U.S. and China. The fact that they are to agree on this issue. Biden several times in the past has said that the U.S. would defend Taiwan if China invaded. We just heard from the U.S. president here in Bali that he does not think a Chinese attack against that self-governing island is imminent. Julia. Yes, there is no imminent intent to invade Taiwan. The direct quote there in your point as well, there need not be a Cold War. Selena, come in here as well, because there was that conversation surrounding Taiwan and quite forthright statements, as I've said. Also with regards to um, North Korea as well, certainly caught my attention with the re- recent um, missile launches and concerns over a potential nuclear test. And he said, it's difficult for me to say that China could control North Korea. And again, he was picking his words very carefully. He was also asked about the relationship in light of Xi Jinping's consolidation of power in recent weeks. And and you and I have talked in, in great depth about that, too. What did you make of those two, I think, vitally important exchanges as well? Well, what's clear here is that, as Ivan was mentioning, that the one thing the two sides can agree on, Julia, is that they need to be engaging more. They don't want war to break out. They don't want things to veer into actual conflict. We did hear the two sides basically reiterate their continued positions on Taiwan. The chasm between these two countries, it's far too deep for this one meeting to begin to scratch the surface, but it's the promise of more dialogues that is hopeful, which is really the best expectation that anybody really hoped from out of this meeting. The Chinese readout was incredibly long. They were restating their position about China's development, restating China's position that they do not want to supplant the United States as the global power, that U.S.-China relations doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, that the world is big enough for the both of them. On Taiwan, I just want to read to you what that readout said from the China side. Taiwan is China's core interest. Of core interest is the political foundation of China-U.S. relations and the first red line of the U.S.-China relations that cannot be trespassed. Solving the Taiwan issue is China's own business and China's internal affairs. Ultimately, what Xi Jinping really wants out of this and moving forward from the United States is for the U.S. to treat China as an equal and to stay out of its internal affairs, which in Beijing's view, Taiwan is very much included in that. But what was promising was we did see some agreement on the two separate readouts, although there was no joint statement. And that is progress because global peace really hinges on these two leaders having the ability, having the channel of communication to talk to each other. And remember, a lot of those channels of communications were cut off from the China side after the August visit by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. We saw a real chill of relations then. And this This is really trying to defrost that relationship and simmer the tensions. Yes. So reading between the lines, as you point out, and both have pointed out, concrete progress, I think, here. A reestablishing of um, of lines of communication, which is vital for all the issues that need to be discussed, short term and longer term. Ivan, Selena, thank you so much for that. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. Amazon founder and now executive chairman Jeff Bezos plans to give away most of his fortune during his lifetime. In an exclusive CNN interview, he says he will devote most of his $124 billion wealth to fight climate change and on healing social and political divisions. 
He also opened up to our Chloe Mellis about the economy, space and domestic life with his longtime partner, Lauren Sanchez. The pair are writing a cheque for $100 million in the meantime to the legendary country singer Dolly Parton to help her advance her own charity work. Listen in. Talk to me about choosing Dolly Parton. Well, uh, look at what she's done and, and how she's led her life. And the way she's done it, these bold things, always with civility and kindness. She's a unifier. You know, we have big problems in the world. And the way to get big problems done is you have to work together. We have too many examples in the world of conflict and people using ad hominem attacks on social media and so on and so on. You won't find Dolly Parton doing that. And when you think of Dolly... Look, everyone smiles, right? Yeah. And all she wants to do is bring light into other people's world. That's all. And so we couldn't have thought of someone better than to give this award to Dolly. The nation is very divided right now on many issues. Do you think that the American dream is something that really is still attainable right now? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I think the American dream is, is and will be even more attainable in the future. Look, one of the things that, that, I, that I don't like about the current environment is that I think there is a lot of division. I think that people use conflict as a tool to achieve their own ends. I don't think it's a good tool. We see sometimes in our political sphere, certain politicians criticize other politicians. They criticize their motives, their character. They call them names. Once you've done that, it's hard to work with somebody. And that's why we created the Courage and Civility Award, because we want to highlight people who don't do that. And we wanted to amplify their voices, you know, because we, the voices that are really negative seem to get amplified in this world. You know, when you go and you look at your net worth, it's too much money to even spend in a lifetime. Do you plan to give away the majority of your wealth in your lifetime? Yeah, I do. And, it, and it, the hard part is figuring out how to do it in a levered way. It's not easy. Um, you know, b building Amazon was not easy. Um, it took a lot of hard work, a bunch of very smart teammates. And I'm finding, and I think Lauren's finding the same thing, that philanthropy is, is very similar. It's not easy. Uh, it's really hard. And there are a bunch of ways that you, I think, that you could do ineffective things, too. So we're building the capacity to be able to give away this money. How do you decide where to put your efforts? There are so many places where you know, philanthropists and anybody who wants to uh, donate to charity can put their money to work. I feel like you have to do things at two timescales. You have to work on the urgent, the here and now, the immediate, and you have to work on the long term. So the Bezos Earth Fund is sort of about this, it's a 10-year it's a commitment to work on uh, these really big problems that we have on sustainability and conservation and restoration. The Day One Fund, where we do work on the here and now, the urgent food security, homelessness, transient homelessness. There's all kinds of uh, very er important problems in that arena, too. Talk to me about this team that you two have built together. That's well, a good word. We're really great teammates, and we also have a lot of fun together, and we, and we love each other. True. So I love how we work together. We always look at each other and, like, we're the team. It's easy. You know, we bring each other energy. Um, we respect each other. Uh, so it's, it, it, it's, it's fun to work together. And Chloe joins us now. First and foremost, Chloe, congratulations. What an awesome interview and awesome access, quite frankly. Um, good for you. What I quite liked about that was the way that they kept looking at each other in a way to decide who can answer. And the moment Lauren began to speak, he, be quiet, he was quiet because he wanted her to speak, which I, I really liked. Um, 
he has been criticised for not signing the giving pledge. And as I was listening to him, I thought to myself, actually, you know what? If I had to choose someone to continue to manage their own money and do good, um, I'd sort of leave it in his hands, given what he's done with Amazon. He has, of course, stepped aside now. And Andy Jassy, the new Amazon CEO, has long had the reins. Um, but you did get the opportunity to talk to him about his sense as a businessman on recession and recession risks. What did he have to well, say look- about that? Julia, it was incredible access at their Washington, D.C. home, their first ever sit-down interview together. And like you point out, the United States is facing um, an economic downturn. And many people are wondering, are we on the brink of a recession? How bad is it going to be? And he told me that this is the time, just like his recent tweet, to batten down the hatches and to really think twice, especially for small business owners, before you purchase those big ticket items. And he said it's really good to keep some powder on hand. So if you're thinking about doing something more extravagant, bigger, if you're a company that might be wanting to buy a big piece of machinery, maybe wait a little bit. But he said, look, there's no way to know. Even the greatest economists don't know when the recession will for sure be here and how long it's going to last, Julia. Yeah, but good advice, I think, to to any small business and an individual is look at your finances and and work out what you can afford and be a little bit cautious at this moment. Um, You had a lot of time with them, too, I believe, over over 20 minutes, just to be clear. And one of the pieces of the interview that I really loved, you started off talking about um, Lauren and and space and her ambitions as far as space is concerned and to leave the boys behind, quite frankly. Um, but it sort of evolved into a discussion about them. I just want to play this for, for our viewers and then, and then you can talk about this too. Do you believe in our lifetime that space travel is going to be attainable for everyone? I do. Let me give you an example. Um, it was only a little more than 100 years ago. The Wright brothers flew this tiny little plane just a couple hundred feet. And if you told the Wright brothers, you know, 100 years from now, there's going to be the, like a 787 that carries 400 <laughs> You'd people. Laugh. You've yet to go. There's been a, a lot of firsts. She's yeah. a future astronaut. I'm yet to go. She's, she's ready. She wants to go. Are I'm we, ready. Are we talking in 2022 or are we talking well, soon? Well, that's pretty quick. Not by the end of 2022, but 2023. Soon. Together? No, he's already been. Yeah, we'll see. She, I think she has some ideas about who she wants to go with. We'll see. I think it'll be a great group of females. Talk to me about what Lauren has brought to your life. Lauren is the most generous, most big-hearted person um, that you would ever meet. So, you know, she is uh, she is an inspiration in that way. She's uh, she's just uh, at every level. You know, she's she's generous with somebody she just meets. She's generous with every person, um, and she's generous in the large too. She's, she never misses a birthday. She, the network of people that she gives birthday presents to is gigantic, and that's just a small example. It's <laughs> so sweet, it's but true. it's very sweet. But it's very, it's just, she's just a very big-hearted person. I'd love to know, what does a typical Saturday night look like <laughs> for Jeff and Lauren? We can be kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> You're never boring. I, I can be a little, That's not true. But it's, I, mean, I can be boring. It's really, I, I would say, normal. We have dinner with the kids. Um, that's always fun and a great conversation. There's seven between us, so there's a lot of, um, a lot of discussion. And then we watch a movie. And Typical with, Saturday night, probably by, a movie. By committee, it takes a long time to find that movie. Wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, we probably spend more time picking the movie than we need to. But know, I think that's country. the fun it's part. It's fun. <laughs> it's 
a lot in that. Mo- movies on a Saturday night by committee actually were quite boring. Clary, it I, sounds you, like my house, you know, <laughs> and I think that what was interesting, though, is that, yes, I'm in their sprawling, you know, D.C. mansion. I think part of it used to be a former textile museum, but really they made me feel so at ease. Um, they clearly are very much in love, but they have they're on the same page. They have the same uh, philanthropic mindset, and it's very clear that she brings a lot of joy. Joy, that Lauren brings a lot of joy to Jeff's life. And it looks like a partnership that's probably going to, you know, go the long run here. And I really, you know, they have seven children bet- bet- between them, like you heard. And it's really interesting to hear that despite being, uh, you know, one of the wealthiest couples in the entire world, you know, right now, I believe he's like the third wealthiest person. At times, he's the number one wealthiest person that really that they're just like us on a Saturday night, just a little bit more money and, and a bigger house. But look, they really were relatable and they could not have been kinder. Yeah, I was about to say, actually, because you've had unparalleled access to some of the biggest celebrities, entertainers, businessmen like this or philanthropists in the world. Um, what was your relative observation? I think you've, you've perhaps said it there that actually they are astonishingly wealthy and it's more than 100 people's lifetimes, yeah. 100,000 people's lifetimes in terms of the wealth. Um, you know, but actually they were nice. Look, I've been a journalist for almost 20 years, believe yeah. it or not, and I have sat down with some of the biggest names in Hollywood as an entertainment reporter. And I have to say that this was one of the interviews right up there with Oprah Winfrey, where I felt the most at ease. They welcomed me into their home. Uh, at one point, I was even, you know, with them in other parts of the house. They were very kind to me. And um, they just want people to hear from them about how they want to change the world. And I think it's just incredibly, um, it's honorable. It's, un, you know, it's really amazing. And despite the fact that he has been criticized for not signing the giving pledge, like, like you heard him say, he plans to give the majority of wealth away in his lifetime. You know, you heard it here first. And I think that that really counts for something, Julia. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, this man, Bill Amazon, let's be clear, I, I, I sort of <laughs> trust him to, to work out how best to. And he said in a leverage way, like he wants to maximize even the amount of money that he has and make big and change. So um, I just I just want to say that, you know, he, he, he talked to me about being the guy that was, you know, on his knees in the warehouse, packing those ba- those right. boxes in the beginning of Amazon with books. He got emotional talking about his grandfather. You know, he has evolved, he said, but he's still that same guy on his grandfather's ranch. And that's what put me at ease as a fellow Texan. It, 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 made, it made for a very easygoing situation. Yes. And um, quite frankly, no one, apart from the great access and great interview, <laughs> no one believes you've been in, in this industry for 20 years, by the way. So congrats. <laughs> I'm like Benjamin Button. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> great to have you on. Thank you. And well done. Claire Mallis there. Thank you. And you can see more of Chloe's interview at CNN.com. And you stay with CNN, because plenty more to come after this. Welcome back to First Move. High stakes and tough talk from President Joe Biden at the G20 summit in Indonesia. Biden held a press conference after meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping for over three hours. It was their first in-person talks as presidents. It was a meeting whose consequence could reverberate for months or even years to come as friction between the world's largest economies continues to grow. 
Joining us now for his perspective is Michael Hesson. He's the Senior Managing Director and Head of China Research at 22V Research. He also served as the U.S. Treasury Department's Chief Representative in China from 2013 to 2016. Michael, fantastic to have you on the show. I want to talk big picture and specifically what this means for, for China and Xi Jinping. But I want to go to that question, actually, that, that President Biden was asked on whether a new Cold War can be avoided and whether China intends to invade Taiwan. And he said, as far as he was concerned, no imminent intent. Sense to you? Yes, I think that's right. Um, I think Beijing clearly does not want to prevent Taiwan from moving any further away from eventual reunification. But I think it would remain an extremely risky endeavor for China to contemplate any kind of invasion. And I just don't think that there's a sense that China's leadership feels an urgency to, to take such a, a risky calculation. Particularly at this moment in time. I think what's sort of interesting to me as well is that this was also President Xi's re-entry, really, back onto the world stage, having not really seen anybody in person for, for two years. And at an incredibly difficult time, I think, for the Chinese economy, for the Chinese people. It was also a message, surely, from him to say, uh, we're back. Absolutely. And, you know, you've seen Xi and you will continue to see Xi Jinping um, conduct a round of meetings with world leaders, again, to, to you know, to bring himself out of uh, COVID-imposed isolation for more than two years and really look to, 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 to push back on some of the efforts by President Biden to build coalitions uh, that are meant to principally counter Russia for the near term, but very much the bigger picture for the U.S. is is building together coalitions to push back on China. And that is what Xi Jinping is looking to avoid. I mean, if you look at it from that perspective, I and mean, I was doing a sort of brief back of hand calculation yesterday, and you could sort of argue in terms of world trade, 60 percent of the world is effectively against China at this moment. I speak to the business community and they, they talk about China now being virtually uninvestable, given the concerns over technology, the sort of anti-business focus, unreliable supplies due to the, the COVID restrictions. I don't believe in coincidences in that we've at least verbally seen China in the last few days talk about relaxing COVID restrictions, the support even for the property sector, the 16-point plan on Friday. Um, this is, at least on the surface, feels like a calculated message and calculated timing, too. I think that's right. There's an element of this that does likely coincide with Xi Jinping's trip to G20. Mm. I think it's also very much a domestic message to China's population. Xi just came out of the 20th Party Congress, uh, is kicking off his next five-year term, and it's clear that he feels an urgency to lift confidence in the economy um, mm. by, uh, you know, signaling that there's going to be a loosening of COVID measures, the property uh, sector measures that you mentioned. Still big questions, though, to get to your earlier point about the investment community in terms of what's really going to move in China in the near term. I think it looks like a very challenging environment for COVID as China heads into the winter months with uh, significant rise in cases. And the property sector is going to take a very long time to recover. So there's an effort to lift confidence here, but the follow through remains, you know, a real question and is going to be very important for, uh, you know, more sustainable uh, recovery. That's such an important point. It's about the verbal pronunciation of something and the lifting of confidence rather than being able to follow through on that 
policy in actuality. What does that mean for the relaxation of, of COVID policy in particular? Because I've certainly seen other commentators saying, look, you're going to have to wait until the second quarter, even the third quarter of next year, really, to get a sense of, of greater relaxation. Would you agree with that kind of time frame, particularly to your point that we're heading into winter? Absolutely. That has been my expectation that we were not going to see meaningful relaxation of COVID measures until the second quarter of next year, really mid next year, partly because China needs to get its public health system in place to deal with a surge in cases. But I have to say right now, it's very fluid. It's a confusing narrative in China. You've seen some local governments in recent days uh, reduce the amount of testing, while others have gone into full or partial lockdown. So I think there's more uncertainty than, than I was expecting about what the near term looks like, though I still think we're going to see very tight containment measures overall, really until the spring uh, and maybe even early summer. Mm. I mean, that's really worrying for Chinese growth and for, for global economic growth, too. Um, Michael, we will continue this discussion. Plenty more to come, but I've run out of time, as always. Um, great to have you on the show, and we'll speak again soon. Michael Hirson, the Senior Managing Director at China Research, Head of China Research at 22V Research. Okay, coming up after the break, Bitcoin's bitter slide. JP Morgan says the crypto crisis is far from over. We'll take a look at the fall of FTX and what else is driving this nightmare for investors. That's next. Welcome back to First Move and a cautious start to the U.S. trading week. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing. The Nasdaq softer by around 1% after last week's outsized 8% gains. And a warning from one of the Federal Reserve Board members, Christopher Waller, weighing on sentiment. He says the U.S. central bank is not any closer to a policy pivot, even after last week's encouraging read on consumer prices. That said, financial giant Goldman Sachs saying inflation is set to slow substantially next year. Goldman sees the Fed's preserved preferred measure of inflation easing to below 3% from 5% levels as we speak. Now, elsewhere in the world, the CEO of Binance, this is the world's largest crypto exchange and a competitor for FTX, too, says consumers need more protection, but no one can protect against a bad player. It comes as investors continue to grapple with the implosion of the FTX group, one of the biggest and most powerful players in the industry. We're now hearing authorities in the Bahamas, where it was based, are investigating potential criminal misconduct. Paula Monica joins us now. Paul, it's a tough one to discuss. It's particularly when we're talking about a private company and when the founder and the person in charge of it is saying that, that consumer assets are protected. That's the difficulty here. The question I keep getting asked by people is, um, why is, why is this different? Why is FTX any different? It's cast a shadow over the entire sector. Yeah, I think uh, FTX, Julia, was one of the uh, supposedly most successful companies in the world of crypto. It had amassed a $32 billion valuation in the private markets, hopes that it could go public sometime next year. Obviously, all of that has rapidly evaporated. This is not a company that's going to go public ever. Uh, they're not worth $32 billion. And I think more importantly, Julia, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX were also viewed by some in the crypto industry as a bit of a savior at a time when, even before this debacle, Bitcoin prices and other cryptocurrencies had plunged this year, and FTX was 
bailing out some of these struggling firms with, you know, propping them up with cash and loans. So the collapse of FTX is really a shock because it's one of the companies that was trying to prevent a broader downturn from taking place. And now they're in trouble, obviously, and no one's coming to rescue them because you mentioned Binance. There was a deal tentatively for Binance to buy FTX. They took a closer look at the books. CZ said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm out of here. Yeah, I and mean, that's the danger, isn't it? When the tide goes out, um, worrying things are revealed. I think that's part of perhaps um, the big concern here is we see all the sort of asset prices fall in this sector. To your point about the Binance CEO, though, he did tweet saying that they're going to be putting money into a fund to try and help some of those players that are, are caught up in this potentially. And Justin Sun, who's the founder of um, another sort of crypto company, Tron, he's been on the show too, said, you know, he would help. And the emphasis here is saving the good and not protecting the bad. So I think the whole industry recognises once again, and we've already mentioned this, that it casts a pall over the entire sector. And for ordinary investors, they're like, who do we trust? What do we trust? Exactly. Because Yeah, because remember, FTX was a company that had attracted money from Sequoia and other major venture capital firms. This was not by any means a fly-by-night company that no one was paying attention to. Uh, there were you know, power hitters in Silicon Valley on Wall Street that were really hoping FTX was going to be the next big crypto company to go public and obviously not happening. Mm. And I think one of the other big questions here is the this criminal charges point that's being now made. And, and businesses lose investors' money all the time. Let's be clear, we see this in, in every downturn. The difference here, and you have to prove if they want to enact criminal charges, is intent to deceive. This is now the question, yeah, I think, for those that, that are working out what comes from, next. Yeah. Moving money from Alameda to other parts of FTX, if that turns out to be criminal, then yes, Sam beckman free can even see. more trouble. Paula Monica, great to chat to you. Thank you so much for that. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Connect the World is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 